Okay, we're live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest. Her name is Annie Schwartz, and she's just published a new edition of her book, an excellent book, which I finished this morning. Title of the book is Monster, the True Story of the Jeffrey Dahmer Murders. And she was really right there on the scene when this whole awful situation went down. Uh, Annie has a long background. She has more than 35 years of experience as an award-winning print and broadcast journalist, author, and internationally recognized trainer and advisor on strategic communication and public relations practices for law enforcement, prosecutors, tribal police, fire, EMS, and others in criminal justice and public safety. She has hundreds of presentations and training sessions internationally and has a unique background on how to manage communications in a variety of scenarios as an expert in providing communication strategies in officer-involved deaths and ensuing civil unrest. She has partnered with the U.S. Department of State Bureau of International Narcotics and Law Enforcement, or the INL, Department of Justice, American Bar Association, United States Agency for International Development, and the National Association of Attorneys General to share communications best practices with criminal justice professionals in the U.S. and abroad. In 2021, she began a long-term project with the Republic of Albania to assist in the creation of a transparency initiative, including developing a public information operation for the Special Anti-Corruption Prosecution Office. Annie has provided training in Armenia to the Chamber of Advocates on best practices in legal communication and has worked with the government of the Maldives, including the Office of President, Office of Attorney General, Judicial Services Commission, and the Bar Council of the Maldives. She's been deployed to North Macedonia for the State Department, where she provided training in strategic communication for the country's prosecutors and judges. And prior to embarking on full-time and teaching and consulting career as a communications director for the Wisconsin DOJ, she led the team that developed an award-winning public service campaign titled Dose of Reality to create awareness of prescription opiate abuse. And she received a national Telly award for the project in 2016. And the program continues today. She's also worked with the Tampa Police Department and has authored this book back when she was a a reporter for the Milwaukee Journal newspaper. And uh, they were nominated for a Pulitzer Prize for this book. So um, we're delighted to have her. So Annie Schwartz, are you there? I, I almost fell asleep listening to you talk about me, but uh, really I interesting. <laughs> Thank you. As my father, the dear departed Victor Schwartz would say, my God, she couldn't hold a job. <laughs> you held so many jobs. I mean, you've <laughs> kind of been around, but I mean, this story goes back 30 years now, right? It's almost the 30 year anniversary. It does. 20 more years and I'd be Harper Lee with To Kill a Mockingbird, right? Wow. Um, it, it does go back 30 years. And the, if you would have asked me back then when I broke the story, if we would still be talking about this case with renewed interest in 30 years, I would have laughed. Uh, you know, when I wrote the when I wrote the book originally in 1991, you know, the famous last words were "Don't quit your day job, kid." Uh, but the uh, you know what I found is that 30 years later, there is a renewed interest in true crime. True, obviously, I'm not telling you something you don't know. Uh, there's a, an incredible interest in true crime and there's an interest cases because I think we as a society, we just can't stop asking the question why. And I don't know that there are any new answers 30 years later to why, 
but I do know that uh, uh, that there's an awful lot that's taken place in the different areas that uh, that were prominent in the Dahmer case. Things like forensic science, uh, things like uh, you know police behavior and the way that police uh, you know conduct investigations. Uh, there's been a lot of change in the media. My goodness, yeah. When I talk in school groups, <laughs> I tell them that. I'm the reporter that broke the Jeffrey Dahmer story. They think it means I tweeted first. Right. You know, so, so there is, you know, there's a lot that has happened since then, but there is a lot that has, when it comes to this case, that, that has remained the same. So I thank you for wanting to talk about it again. Great. Well, I'm delighted that you agreed to the interview. Really a fantastic book. And we were talking to pre-show how many details you have. You can really tell you were on site there at the time. Can you talk kind of, your background, what led you to uh, Milwaukee and to work for, um, was it the Milwaukee Journal and kind of lead up to the events of the uh, Dahmer case? Sure. I, well, I was born in New York. Um, every once in a while, when I, I say New York or coffee, you can kind of you know hear it sneaking out there. Uh, but uh, we, I moved back to Milwaukee, which is where my mom and dad were from. Uh, we came back here in uh, when I was 10 years old and so spent the rest of my life here. In, in Milwaukee. I got a job at the uh, former Milwaukee Journal. Uh, now it's called the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, but these were in the, uh, you know, the, the halcyon days of a morning and an afternoon newspaper. So the, I got a job there as a stringer. Uh, I'd moved back away from Milwaukee for a number of years and then moved back when my mother died in 1987. And Milwaukee, you know, it's the Midwest, William. It, it, it's a place that feels like a big warm hug, especially when life is not going very well. So I moved back here and I decided to pursue the job that I had always wanted, which was to, to be a reporter. Uh, I started out as a stringer at the Milwaukee Journal. I, uh, and eventually they had a, uh, an opening on the night cops beat, which I would say is the most unenviable beat in the newsroom if you're young and single, because it's Friday, Saturday, and Sunday 4 p.m. to 1 a.m. Well, I knew enough to know that that's when all the really good stories were going to happen. So, of course, I wanted it. I, I think I wanted that more than I wanted a boyfriend. So I took uh, I took the, the job and I just worked the hell out of it. I, I got to know all the cops. I did ride-alongs with them during the times when I wasn't working uh, just because I wanted to get to know them. And if you're somebody who has an affinity for a subject, and I had an affinity for the the you know the milieu of policing to see behind the curtain like that by riding along with them is 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 a dream so i i got to know them quite well and that paid off for me uh four years after i had started there in on july 22nd 1991 when i got a call from a source very late at night it's a landline people it was no you know it wasn't the cell phone you know it wasn't ringing it was an actual landline and uh, it was a, a little bit before midnight. And the source of mine, who I recognized as a police officer, said, Annie, they just found a guy's head in a refrigerator here. We're at 25th and Kilbourne. It looks like he maybe has been saving body parts in his house. And so I hear this, and, and I'm thinking perhaps it's one of the cops trying to have a little fun with me because they've been known to do that. But there was something in in his voice that just told me that there was that I should go check it out. So I showed up at the scene. Uh, I was the only reporter on the scene for quite a while. I was the first reporter on the scene. And I there were only a few cops on the scene. This was very, very fresh when I first got there. 
And I walked into the building. There hadn't been police tape up yet. And I just stood at the threshold of Dahmer's apartment. There was an officer that I knew who was standing outside the door up against the wall, Rolf Mueller. And I later found out that he was the one that opened the refrigerator and made that horrific discovery of, of a human head. Uh, I looked in the apartment, just kind of looked from the threshold. Uh, it's not the kind of thing where you'd go inside and start walking around and taking photographs, but uh, it, it didn't look like a you know chamber of horrors or anything. You're, you're hearing all this awful stuff. You know, Jeffrey Dahmer, we can never forget, didn't look like Manson, right? He didn't have a, a swastika carved in his head. He didn't foam at the mouth. He was a good looking, quiet guy. And his apartment was kind of the same as he was. It was a little railroad kitchen. It, it's in a bad neighborhood. I mean, you know, I don't know what the PC way is of saying a bad neighborhood, a challenged neighborhood, perhaps. Uh, but a neighborhood in your to crime, it's not a place where you wouldn't expect to, to see all kinds of things happen. Um, what was the smell like? It was pretty awful. But here's the thing is it was not the smell of death. If you interview enough cops like I think you do, uh, you know that there's a very distinct smell to that. This was the smell of something really like chemical and sweet and just something rotten. It was, it was, it was not, it was unlike anything I'd ever smelled before. And in fact, one of the detectives that I interviewed when I updated the book uh, just this year, so 30 years later, and you, I mean, how grizzled are these guys, right? So I, I talked to uh, the guy who was one of the first detectives on the scene and he said, Annie, to this day, 30 years later, if I walk past a janitor or a maintenance guy in some building and he'll have a bucket and I get a, a whiff of, of the cleaning fluid, he said, sometimes that smell takes me right back there and I stop in my tracks. Yeah. So what it is like, I mean, you said you walked right in there or, or were able to kind of pass the threshold, right? Into the Well, I walked into the building and then I stood at the threshold, just kind of stepped in a little bit to peek my head around and, and see if there was anybody I knew in there. It, it's not unusual that I would be at homicide scenes. I was at a lot of them. And on ride-alongs, I was at a lot of them. And I, I suppose maybe I thought I could just walk in here like I'd walked in other scenes before. But this was different. This was, it, I can't tell you how quiet the scene was, William. It was so Crime scenes are are very, you know, crazy places. They're they're loud. People are running around and you know gesticulating for the cameras and doing all the things people do when they're you know when the police are around. But when I walked up just outside the building, it was so quiet. And inside the building, right at Dahmer's apartment, the the cops were 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 pretty quiet inside as well. And I later learned that they had found uh, the, the bodies literally had piled up. The bodies were piling up. Uh, they had discovered the vat with that, that where Jeffrey Dahmer was trying to dissolve uh, some of the skin so that he could at least get rid of the, of the bones of some of his victims. Uh, and then they were all looking, they were all gathered around looking at uh, Polaroid photographs that were sitting on uh, Dahmer's dresser. And these were photographs that Dahmer had taken of his victims in various stages of dismemberment. Uh, it was it was a horrific scene. And when you're talking about the Milwaukee police in, in the 1990s, you're talking about a pretty grizzled group of guys. And I say guys because that was largely what it was. And they were gobsmacked by this. They were truly their mouths were agape and they were trying to figure it out.
And you, I think you said in your book, like it was almost kind of like a weird rever uh, reverential feeling or something like of quiet, like something awe, awe inspiring had happened that night. And uh, what, I mean, he, it was late at night, like at 1 p.m. So you got the call very late, right? Uh, I got the call at about 11 p.m., but that's right around when the discovery inside the apartment had been made. The discovery was made, I want to say about, I think it was maybe around 10.30. It was within an hour of when I uh, when I got to the scene. And I, I got out of there as quickly as I could, and then I got outside to talk to some of the neighbors because I knew that that was going to be important before they started you know, I mean, this was a, a story, William, where, you know, it was just Annie Schwartz from the journal with a notebook at, you know, at, at 1 a.m. But I'm telling you, by 10 o'clock the next morning, it was Inside Edition and Oprah and just pick a, you know, pick a, uh, a you know, a, a, an outlet. Uh, they were swarming on the place. So I was talking with the people that had witnessed something. And again, you know, it wasn't like the usual a way that people talk about a crime. Yeah, I saw it all. This was happening and this was happening. There's a woman named Pamela Bass who was Jeffrey Dahmer's across the hall neighbor, she and her husband, Vernell. And she was gripping at the top of her, her bathrobe right right, at, right by her neck. And, uh, you know, I remember that, that she had this pink terry cloth robe on and kind of these dirty pink terry cloth slippers. And it, it, her eyes were very wet as though she had been crying and I talked to her and I said, you know, what, what do you know? And she said, well, that was, that was, you know, Jeff's apartment. She said, I didn't really know him very well. She said, you know, it, it, there was always that bad smell. And she said, you know, they're saying they found a head in the refrigerator. Do you know if that's true? And I said, well, that's, that's what I'm hearing. And then she just kind of dropped her head down and, you know, we, we spoke very briefly. People were just shocked by the information they were hearing. And that didn't get any better when the medical examiner showed up and started taking out boxes from the apartment that had written on the front of them skulls or, uh, you know, uh, skull body parts, parts skull, skull parts. parts. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And those are kind of infamous pictures that have just been passed all around the internet are these. And also you mentioned the guys by name, the cleaners eventually showed up. So oh, like yeah. very, and you heard stories that I'd never heard about the cats at the in the garbage can, and heard sawing. So all these people, you picked up these little vignettes, these little things that uh, really were remarkable. And you, I suppose, you're just jotting them down in your notebook at that time. Is that correct? Well, that's that's what I had to work with. I was a uh, kind of old school, but that was kind of current school actually in the '90s. I had a, a reporter's notebook and a pen, and I just was you know, listening to everybody that, that was telling me anything, I wrote it all down. Because what would happen in the ensuing days is the people's recollections of a famous serial killer would get more embellished as time went on. And I was really trying to guard against that. I knew, I knew that, that, that that was probably something that would happen because by the time I went back to that building the next day, the, I mean, it was just swarming with media, there was a limousine there from a national talk show getting ready to take some of the residents down to Chicago so they could tape interviews. It was it was crazy. It was crazy. And you really had that story first. So you were there in the middle of the night. And I think you did two stories on Tony Hughes, somebody who had uh, had disappeared, right? 
I think we talked. I've tried to mention his name in the pre-show. That was the guy Tony Hughes. Yeah, he, one of the one of the victims, Tony Hughes, was deaf and and was very close to his mother, very close to his family. And when Tony Hughes didn't come home after one night at the bars, uh, his mother became concerned. Uh, Tony Hughes was kind of an anomaly of all of the the Dahmer victims because he stayed very close to his family. He was out to his family. Uh, and his family went to the police and filed a missing persons report. And, you know, the, all of these things come together when we find out about the murders. But when you have a missing persons report about an adult male who was last seen at one of the gay bars in, in Milwaukee in, you know, in the late eighties, early nineties, I think this was, I think his, I think he was, uh, he was, uh, killed in, uh, in 91, there was uh, there was a lot of how can I say it you know the right way there was a lot of concern that that this person had been uh, you know had been um, reported missing but was anybody really looking for him and what I always wanted to point out was that he was reported missing against the backdrop of some of the of of, of more homicides than we'd ever seen in the city of Milwaukee in the year 1991 so. That's, you know, uh, that is the unfortunate part of that story. I don't believe it was disinterest on the part of the police that kept them from looking from him. I think that what it was, was a police department that just had had more violent crime than they could, you know, than they could solve. And this is something that sadly, you know, got lost in the shuffle. Sorry, my my I turned my mic off. Uh, right. Can you talk about uh, like there was the Dressler case, and can you talk about how the story kind of developed right from the first day? You said there was competition, mm -hmm. crackpot tips, and all that stuff. Can you talk about how that developed? Oh sure. Why well, you know who doesn't want the biggest story in the newsroom? And you know there can be a little bit of ugliness when the coolest story going in the country is being led by you know the the you know the 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 30 year old you know 24 hour a week uh part-time reporter who also happens to be waitressing at a you know at a restaurant nearby uh it's kind of it's not supposed to be her you know it wasn't supposed to be me that would be the one and there were reporters in our newsroom that wanted to take the story over and i will always remember an editor named carolina garcia uh, I think she's in Texas now. I hope maybe she hears this or someone tells her. But she is the one that said, you know what? She broke the story, meaning me. She stays on the story. And she fought for me. And that doesn't normally happen. You know, it's, you know, Woodward and Bernstein weren't Woodward and Bernstein when they were looking into, you know, into Watergate. Uh, so it was, it was a, a very, it's a very strange position to be in. But then also this became a national story. This is Milwaukee. You know, remember when we first started talking today that I said, you know, I moved back here because it's the Midwest and it's cozy and it feels good. And, and it was it felt like home and nothing ever happens here. And the worst rap on Milwaukee was that we had a reputation as the home of Laverne and Shirley and we liked our beer. Well, they would have taken that reputation back any day after the Dahmer case broke. Right. And I mean, you said like at the very beginning, you didn't know the total magnitude, but it suddenly 
done, like people grasped how serious the situation was. And do you remember, like, when was the first time you saw or was it, uh, or knew of Dahmer as a person? Like, they didn't even divulge his name, right? Uh, I got his name. Uh, I was able to get his name, and we had it. There, there's a, a in my in my office. There hangs a, a front page uh, of the journal from that day, uh, and the headline says "Body Parts Litter Apartment." And then in the story, I shared everything that I knew at that time. It was a single byline story. I found out his name. Uh, we 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 were the first uh, media outlet to use the word "serial killer" with him, uh, and and all those things were just. I mean, they were unthinkable. Uh, and I, I, I would like to say that I have, you know, a TikTok recollection of, of working on the story that first day, but really you just become very focused about it. And it's, it's, war, it's business and you're telling the story. And it was such a fascinating story. I was surprised at how fast that story went from, oh my God, we had a serial killer to who are we going to blame for this? And the blame game, as I say in my training to law enforcement all over the world, uh, I say um, the blame game starts early because when something bad happens, it's got to be somebody's fault. Right. That's interesting. So your current career, your career arc was influenced by this event because you had worked in this crisis situation. Is that correct? Well, I was a reporter and kind of a natural path for reporters sometimes to end up in public relations. But I pretty much knew that the private sector wasn't going to be for me. Uh, and when Milwaukee Police Department had their first female chief, she reached out to me and asked what it would take to get me to leave journalism and to come and work for her and build uh, really the department's first uh, completely you know, professional a public relations operation. And so I did that in 2004. I was appointed to the Milwaukee Police Department as a civilian, uh, but as a, a commander of their public information operation. And we did some groundbreaking things uh, at that department. We were one of the first major cities in the country to use social media. But, you know, I, I don't really get to brag about any of those things because it always comes back to, hey, aren't you the one that did the Dahmer story? Because it's the thing that everybody wants to talk about, even 30 years later. They're still talking about it. It's just he's just a factor in all the true crime stories. And you were there. Can you talk? I mean, it's you know, and that's I think it's an important theme of your book about how many times Dahmer slipped through the cracks all the way up to 1991. Can you let the audience know where that began, maybe in his life, maybe an aspect that a lot of people don't know that much about? There were a number of times, but I will I will say this, and I promise you, I'm not I'm not here to be an apologist for the police. But I will tell you that one of the pieces of equipment that they do not have on their belt is a crystal ball, and I'm sure they wish they did. Something they don't have in the courtroom is a crystal ball. They wish they did. But you know, when Dahmer killed his first victim, he had his body in garbage bags in the back of his car when Dahmer was stopped by the police. Right, that's when he was eighteen, right? Ohio, he was eighteen years old. Right. He just done his first murder. There were there were times when you know he was uh, so he was arrested by uh, by the police for sexually assaulting a uh, a young boy, and the boy went home and told his parents, and his parents uh, told the police, and so Dahmer was uh, went to you know went, went in front of a judge for this, and he was given uh, he was given probation. 
and he was on probation and had a probation agent who was to be checking on him. Um, and you know, it, it kind of goes on and on like that. All the, the, you know, the near misses. And of course the most famous, uh, was, uh, when the two police officers from the Milwaukee police department, uh, encountered Connor X phone, who was, uh, one of Jeffrey Dahmer's final victims. There were still four more, uh, victims killed after Connor Um, but, uh, Dahmer had, uh, you know, Dahmer was was a master manipulator, and we can't forget that. This wasn't craven disregard by a couple of cops who are tired. This, this, you know, let's look at what these officers had in front of them then that night, and then let's make all the judgments that we can. Find a lawyer who says, oh, there was absolutely probable cause for those officers to go further into Dahmer's apartment and to search it because they took the, the boy back to Dahmer's apartment with right. him. That was the brother of his or original victim too, which is really crazy. It's so really he had crazy. that one person he sexually assaulted and yeah, there were discussions in that original trial. Is this person going to be good back in society? Mm-hmm. Is he not? And Dahmer seemed to really have a poker face and really be very clever and really manipulate everybody. Like he's bringing a school to work and working and still nobody knows, right? So he, he absolutely was a master manipulator. When he spoke, he was very well-spoken. He was very soft-spoken. He, he didn't, you know, he wasn't crazy looking guy. I got to find another synonym for crazy because I got a feeling that I'm going to get some really awful email. From Deranged him, you know? maybe. Yeah. But, but he was, I mean, he was, he, he appeared even throughout his trial. You know, he never broke. He never broke in prison. He never broke. He was always, he was just vanilla all the way through. Nothing that made him interesting. He wasn't funny. In fact, when you, when you spoke with him, in fact, Jerry Boyle, his attorney, who I also interviewed 30 years later to, for some reflections on his most famous client, Jerry Boyle said, you know what? Any question I would ask him, and I worked with him for, you know, for more than six months uh, and stayed friends with him for more than a year after that. Um, Jerry Boyle said he only answered questions with very simple yes, no, or the shortest amount of, of words possible. He just, he, that was who Dahmer was. It's just so strange. And also like you can hear him speak and and recorded things and you recorded him at trial and saw him at trial. And it just, it's just very, like very strange how he played them off. Even with that boy and all the Sam Sam Theron, I can't pronounce his last name, but like, the cops didn't see him sweater. The cops are super uh, attentive to kind of people's uh, vibes or whatever emotions, and they they didn't see anything coming off Dahmer. who had dead bodies in his room. It's off right. the charts. Yeah, didn't have anything. Didn't see any emotions coming out of Conorak either, because you know there was a there was an ambulance on scene. Conorak was sitting you know sitting on the edge there. He had a, a, one of those silver uh, blankets on, uh, but he wasn't bleeding. You know, there's been a lot of, of talk in the media. The, there was a, you know, the woman who called uh, the police that, uh, that night said that there's a young, a young boy who's naked and bleeding. He wasn't bleeding when, when, the, when the, you know, the, the paramedics saw him. Because if he had been, they would have taken him. He wasn't struggling with anyone. He wasn't resistant to go back with Dahmer up to Dahmer's apartment. We know now it's because he was drugged. 
but we didn't, you know, what do you know back then? You know, how far could these, you know, officers have taken this? They went in the apartment. They saw Conorak's clothes folded very neatly on the corner of the couch. They saw some of the same, they saw Polaroid photographs of him that Dahmer had taken of him posing in a very, uh, very seductive, very sexual way uh, in his underwear. And Dahmer says, this is my boyfriend. And the, the, the final piece to that is he didn't look like a little kid. If you look at the photograph that Dahmer took of him the night that he later killed him, this is somebody that looked absolutely completely like an adult male. And, you know, and I know all of those are terribly inconvenient arguments when we want to yell and scream about police incompetence. But those are the things that I know from doing my research. Other people certainly, there are as many opinions, you know, William on this case and why certain things happened as there are words in my book. So right, and but that goes back to the, right. It goes back to the crisis blame. Who's going to take the blame? Who's going to shift the blame? You talk about the chief of police, Ariola. But getting back to Dahmer too, his manipulation. He one thing that I learned from your book is he would like inquire with his victims about their background, and I didn't know that he picked victims out of Chicago either. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about how he went? And he also was drugging people in gay bars too. So his drugging wasn't just at home. He was drugging people all over the place, right? The drugging got him thrown out of the bath. So in the 80s and 90s in, in Milwaukee, now remember, conservative Midwestern town. We got to keep saying it because it is, it's, it's, we were not as, uh, how would I say it? We were not as advanced or not as knowledgeable then as we are today uh, about, uh, about inc being inclusive. Uh, about uh, making it okay to to bring your whole self to work or to you know our out in public, so the gay community in Milwaukee was historically very closeted, very closeted. So when when you know the when all of a sudden the the bathhouse was you know finding it, they said you know there's a guy who you know who's picking up these guys, but then they're they're like passing out or they can't remember things. He was banned from the bathhouses, but. Do you think at that time anybody thought, what if he's a serial killer? Oh, my goodness. What if, he, you know, nobody's thinking that way. Uh, so Dahmer was, he was very charming. You know, he would, he went to the bars. I, I went to those gay bars after the Dahmer discovery and talked to all those bartenders. I talked to customers. I asked them, what do you remember? And, and the thing about Dahmer is he wasn't somebody you'd remember. He was good looking. And he, you know, but he wasn't, he wasn't the guy wearing the lampshade at the party. Now he was, he was very vanilla, but, but one of the things that he did to show you how uh, clever he was and how manipulative he was is he would start a conversation with one of the men that he'd meet in the bar. And he'd maybe ask them a little bit about where they, they came from, or he might ask, uh, hey, I, you know, how are your parents when you came out? Or how was your family when you came out? And if they said, oh, my gosh, my family was wonderful. They were amazing. We're so close. That person wasn't going to be a victim because Jeffrey Dahmer chose people who weren't going to be missed, or at least he thought they wouldn't be missed. So creepy too, yeah. Just like him out there searching. You said like he wouldn't talk to the bartender. He just mind his own drink, drink a couple screwdrivers, like just the true. He was really a, a monster. He was really a predator. Um, and so this story, unless these police kind of get in trouble for all that, what kind of happened next to 
to, as the story progressed from um, this kind of, uh, you know, from the day that, from 1991, when he was, when uh, people entered his apartment. Well, Chief Ariola fired those two officers that had had contact with Dahmer and Conorak that evening, but they appealed. And later, uh, the circuit court said that they were uh, they were they were fired. Uh, it was against the law to fire them. It was unlawful to terminate them. So they both got their jobs back with back pay. Uh, one of them returned to the Milwaukee Police Department. One of them went on to policing in another municipality, and. But it was it was interesting to me because when I was writing the update to the book, the one that, I, you know, this year when I was doing the update for Monster, the thing that I did was went back and looked at the court transcript from the hearing where the judge announced he was giving those cops their job back and he cited qualified immunity. And yeah. that's a magic word right now in, in policing. But I never even thought about it way back, you know, way back when, because it wasn't, you know. There was no, you know, it wasn't uh, the time of, of George Floyd and, and the time of taking a really close look at the police department. Right, because back then qualified immunity meant that the police were able to make their own decisions based upon the facts, which would make them immune, right? Immune Correct. to prosecution. That as long as they were making a good faith effort, as long as they did their due diligence, then there was no, you know, there was no no malice assumed. There was no wrongdoing assumed. Uh, so they, you know, those two guys, they got their, their jobs back, but they never got their lives back because they both knew that any time they would be written about in the newspaper for anything, this would always be the, this would always be the, uh, you know, the caveat. This would always be the, the, not just the asterisk, but it would be like the first sentence. And there were other things that came out of this case too. There was supposedly our Jesse Jackson so showed up. You have a picture of him in your book. So there's a racial element and also an LGBTQ kind of aspect to it, too, because he was in that. Can you talk about how that kind of played out after Dahmer was arrested? Well, it was an ugly time for Milwaukee. It really was. It was it was almost an embarrassment because we were now, instead of being this nice, sleepy, hardworking Midwestern town, middle-class Midwestern town, we were the place that, uh, you know, that, that didn't care uh, about, uh, about the gay community. We were this place that discriminated against the black community. We were this place that, that had this awful crime happening and seemingly nobody noticed or cared. That was the narrative that was playing out, you know, around the country about Milwaukee and it was a very sad time for this for this city to this day if you say you are from Milwaukee people will you know they used to say Oliver oh, and Shirley are happy days and now they say ah Dahmer, Dahmer that's wow. not what we wanted for this city I know it's not but it's it's a sad a sad result of of what happened there but some things did come out of that time you know the the LGBTQ community here in in Milwaukee uh, now has a voice uh, in our city. Uh, the community now is able to, uh, you know, to uh, to work together with the police. Uh, it is it, it's a it's a different world now than it was then. There are, and this was even before George Floyd, but there there was outreach consistently from the Milwaukee Police Department to the community. 
Uh, since the Dahmer case, we had our first African-American police chief. We had our first female chief. We had our first Hispanic police chief. These are all the, you know, the things that, uh, that have developed since. But sadly, the Milwaukee Police Department, I think, still carries around that, that you know, that, that uh, terrible uh, mark on, right. on its history. And you went, you went through the trial, so you saw him at trial and heard there was a lot more that came out that wasn't known until the trial. Like there was somebody, like there were stories that I hadn't heard that came out at trial. Can you talk about what it was like seeing him at trial and kind of some of the additional information that came out? Well, I still remember the, his, for his initial appearance in court and all the reporters were there. We're all sitting together. We can't wait to see this guy, right? What is this guy going to look like? And we were all thinking it was going to be a Charles Manson like, you know, figure. But then when they, when the deputies walked him into the courtroom for that initial appearance in that very famous video that they're photographed, that people have seen, uh, it was actually the cover of my, of my first book is when he was, you know, in court the very first time he, uh, he it, there was nothing exceptional. You just looked at him and we were kind of looking at each other like, that's him. That's the guy. You know, even the cops were amazed at how polite he was with the officers and how, again, how soft spoken he was with them. It was uh, to see him in court and then to see him during the sentencing when the families were able to get up and give their victim impact statements. And one of the the victim's sisters, Rita Isbell, got up and just completely lost her mind when she was giving her her victim impact statement. She, She screamed, she cursed, it was live television, and she went over and tried to attack him. And it one of the more eerie things that I remember from that day at trial is that he didn't move. You know, somebody lunges towards you, you, you know, you, you move back. He just sat there stoically. He just sat there stoically. It was, it was crazy. And, and it was probably hard for the bailiffs and the deputies to keep uh, her from attacking him. Cause I think they probably figured that that would be, you know, that wouldn't be a negative, right. but, uh, but that was, that was what I remember a, a, a great deal about. Um, there were countless psychiatrists, forensic psychiatrists that, that testified, uh, including Park Dietz, you know, who testified in the Hinckley case. Um, and these, these were people who got up there and they talked about their conversations with Dahmer. And you had to remind yourself that they were talking about a serial cannibalistic necrophiliac killer. Right. It's incredible. And you call it like the battle of the specialists or battle of the doctors there, determining whether he had an insanity plea, right? So whether Correct. he was. He, ple- he pleaded guilty on the murders, but what he wanted and what his attorney, Jerry Boyle, was arguing for is they wanted him to be found not guilty by reason of insanity. What they wanted is they wanted a. Uh, him to be studied. And actually Donner himself wanted to be studied. He wanted to know why he did these things. And when I went back and I talked to Dennis Murphy, who was the original detective that took Dahmer's confession those nights after the discovery was made, I went back to Dennis 30 years later and Dennis still remembers. He says, yeah, he said it was, it was just the strangest thing in the world that it was like having a conversation and you forget you know, what horrible things this guy did. Right. He, I mean, it's weird too. Like he didn't have any hostility towards the police. You said he had this relationship with a cop named Kennedy where they would sit around and talk all the time. So not like a really 
ferocious type character around authorities, but just a real brutal. He would select people who didn't have cars. So mm -hmm. he was cunning about all of his victims, really. And you could tell us so you can't be insane if you're really thinking, mm -hmm. I don't want to get uh, get caught. Let's see. Mm -hmm. I have a question. Do you mind taking a few questions before we wrap it up? No, yeah. certainly. Uh, William, could you ask her about Joe Dressler doing repairs at Dahmer's complex? Hmm. Dressler was also a cannibal serial killer that hated gays. So uh, Joe Dressler happened right before the Dahmer case was discovered. Actually, his trial was coming up right before the Dahmer case uh, or the Dahmer discovery was made. And I remember that because the more seasoned reporters were all fighting to be able to cover that case because up until July 23rd of 1991, that was the nastiest case anybody had, you know, anybody had come across. Um, I don't know if that is true. Uh, there are a lot of things people have said over the years. There was one guy who was convinced that Dahmer killed Adam Walsh. Uh, and I, 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 I have spoken with John Walsh about that, about that very thing. And there, nothing about the Adam Walsh murder matches up with Dahmer's method of operation or uh, with, his, uh, with what his proclivities were. And, you know, there's a tendency when you find a really famous serial killer is that people just let's clean up the books. Let's find, you know, let's find all the unsolved murders and let's, you know, see what we can what we can do. So in this case, they uh, uh, they were able to, uh, you know, there was a guy who wrote a whole book about it. But that right. theory has been debunked. And Otis Toole is pretty much thought to be the person who who murdered Adam Walsh and uh uh, John Walsh himself agrees. And, and if you know anything about John Walsh, you know that if he believed for a hot second that Jeffrey Dahmer did this, he would have been on that case. And he just did not believe that that was true. Right. It just was weird events. He was in Miami at the time. Mm -hmm. And Dahmer was also in Germany for a while. Right. They tried to tie cases to him, but they weren't people weren't successful, right? No, well, he was in the military in Germany, and uh, and there were some. I think they were they were nurses. There were a, a number of women that had been had been murdered, and there were, those were unsolved murders. Again, there was really no reason for Dahmer to lie once he started confessing. He confessed to murders we would have never known about, but for his confession, he confessed to a murder in a death penalty state. So he, you know, there was, I remember an interviewer once asked me and they said, you know, Annie, seriously, you're taking the word of a serial killer. Well, when, you know, he would wake these two cops up at night, he'd have somebody wake them up at night and have them come in to see him at the jail because he would remember another murder or another detail. Um, there was a, a part of Dahmer that, that truly did want to give the families as much as he could, but his, his, you know his apology, his his statement at the end of uh, at the end of the trial really rang hollow for everybody. And this is an interesting question because I interviewed Susan. I think her name is Kolarik, who Dahmer had her book. Oh, Geraldine about, Kolarik. Right, Kolarik. So I've interviewed one her. One of my best friends. How oh, really? Like oh, cool. Story? How's she doing? I hope she's doing well. She's she doing a well. She uh, the, we met on a on a TV show where we were both being interviewed. And we became friends because like, how often in your life, you know, do you have two people who wrote books about serial killers become friends? She said, oh, my gosh, we should, you know, we should have a podcast. There's right. A, but you, you should. Know. Both gay serial killers. Well, that was the Eiler case. So my understanding is that Eiler Kolarik's book was in 
uh, Dahmer's apartment. Is that correct? Were that is to... correct. Okay, so that is that correct. Is correct. That then... gave us the, I mean, the friendships have been built on a lot of stranger things. <laughs> But yes, I, I did find out that her book was uh, was in his apartment. Uh, and then as a, you know, as a third one, I, I've become friends with Robert Rand, who uh, wrote about the Menendez brothers. Oh, wow. And so the three of us said, gosh, wouldn't you just like to bug the sugar bowl when the three of us are having dinner conversation? But <laughs> I'm sure that's interesting. But that's who she wrote a great book. I think it was let out of jail. It was something about her being free to the kill. Free to kill. That's right. Free to kill. Yeah. So I interviewed her a couple of years ago. Um, mm -hmm. But the question is, have you found any affiliation between Eiler and Dahmer? It's rumored they frequented the same bars. Have you ever heard anything like that? I have not. I have, I have not heard of any affiliation between the two, any knowledge of the two, but you know, who would we ask who could tell us? Right. And then armor up asks. I know the answer to this, but I'll let mm -hmm. any any. Yeah, I see uh, it. They're asking about the altar that he made of bones, the power triangle, the pyramid made of skulls. All the that photograph is in the is in the book. There's a, a the drawing that Dahmer made of it. Uh, he was attempting to build some kind of an altar in his in his bedroom uh, with the skulls on it, and you know it, it's hard to say what he was what he was trying to do with it. The biggest right. concern police had when they first arrested him was find out who the victims are. And then we can talk about all the other nutty stuff that was Jeffrey Dahmer later. But he did. Uh, but that is something that he had in the in the house. He also had uh, the skulls of his of a number of his victims and he had painted them with gray paint. So people would think they were fake. But they were actually real. That's part of his deception. And, and there's a little element of occultism there. There was a time where he supposedly dabbled in the occult mm -hmm. and he liked to watch Exorcist 3, which had like this strange occult character, Gemini, I think. And the last victim who got away uh, said that he was like rocking back and forth. Do you know mm -hmm. anything about his occult interest or anything? He, it was an interest that he had. Uh, in fact, I think that was, uh, I'm trying to remember, I think he got yellow contact lenses at some point right. uh, so that he could look like the, the character in, in that movie. He also was fascinated with the movie Faces of Death, uh, which is, of course, a, a movie where uh, I believe it's, a, it's an, a real film where you see people right before they die or you see people as they die. Uh, so... He certainly was, you know, he took the, he took what may have started as, I don't want you to leave me. I mean, you know, it's, it's, you know, abandonment syndrome gone wild uh, to what if I can keep these people here with me, but I can make them kind of like zombies and I can keep them under my control. That would be the ideal. But he tried that and it didn't work. Dahmer didn't kill these, these men and boys because he hated them. He killed them because he was trying to figure out a way to keep them with him. Wow. Yeah. It's so creepy. Mm -hmm. And you wrote in your book, this guy Weinberger survived two days after undergoing the Dahmer yeah. treatment. Have you talked to Dahmer's former, former partner in the military named Capshaw? I have not. I don't recall that I did. If it's uh, if it's not in the first book, then I I didn't. Uh, it's it's so hard to, it's really it's hard to remember because I uh, you know it's thirty years ago 
And I do go back and read my own books so that when I talk to people like you, William, I don't sound like an idiot because you just read it last night. But um, I forget what's in my book. So it makes you feel any better. I can't remember some of my stuff. Uh, and I see somebody's asking about the cameras, that he had cameras in his apartment. Um, most of them were fake. Um, and uh, I'm I'm not aware that that any of them was actually a real camera off of which police were able to get video. And Annie, we are coming to the end. We're almost at 50 minutes. Is there anything you'd like to add? Anything I missed before we wrap it up? Well, I think that what, what made this journey so interesting is to go back 30 years later and to create the book Monster. It is a, There's a, a brand new uh, chapter because the first book ends, the story ended really in 1991 with Dahmer walking out of the courtroom and going to prison. And as we now know, he, you know, he had a whole, you know, he had a couple of years in prison at least, during which time people were able to, um, you know, talk with him, during which time he allegedly, you know, found the Lord and got baptized. And, you know, the, the problem is, is he's so famous, we don't know really what to believe. But I went back and talked to the people who I knew told me the truth 30 years ago, and I re-interviewed them just this year and said, what stayed with you from the case? And the observations from the DA, from his attorney, from the medical examiner were really uh, uh, interesting, interesting conversations. I had no idea, for example, that Jerry Boyle continued to talk with Dahmer in jail, that Dennis Murphy visited with Dahmer in jail uh, long after, you know, he, he put him there. Uh, so for me, Monster really was a, a, the period on the end of the sentence uh, to tell people what happens when you live through a case like this and you have a front row seat. What right. does that journey look like 30 years later? And we all share that in this new book. Yeah, it's really a great book, a terrific book. All the details, first person details, really unique. Again, the title of the book is Monster, the true story of the Jeffrey Dahmer murders. Just a new edition, October 2021. And the author, again, is Anne or Annie Schwartz. So, Annie Schwartz, thank you so much for your time. Oh, William, thank you. And I look forward to hearing your next podcast. Cool. Well, I'm going right on to uh, another fun subject, pedophilia and sex trafficking. So and we'll that's where I'm going to leave you. <laughs> All right. All right. Bye, Annie. Thank Take you care. so much, William. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Hold on.